0: The rich, feed the poor. Don't old, rich no
1: more.
2: I love to change the world. Da, da 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 There's our old familiar lyrics. Alvin Lee back on the air after a couple of days of restful time away from you, good folks. It's a Friday, and Brent's with us. It's the twenty seventh, the Friday after Christmas of the year of twenty nineteen, and uh, like I said, just kind of stretch it a little bit, get back on the air. I took a couple of days off; just been unplugged. Brent joined us right before the show. You have a nice uh, Christmas with your family, Brent.
3: Well, no, my I'm on the road again, and uh, and my family, they all kind of got together in two places and I was in neither one of them, but a necessity demanded it. So here I am, I'm still out and about. Yeah. And, uh, what I'm seeing is that, that, uh, my kind of people are in the minority in a lot of places. And when I say my, my kind of people, I'm just talking about your regular old wasp. Um, we've been overcome with another, well, different kinds of folk and after long contemplation about it, I've concluded that we've been here for, I'm, I'm my kind of people, been here for about 400 years now. And the judgment of God is in full swing. We're not waiting for the judgment of God. We're in it. Yeah, I agree. And it's nobody's fault but our own. And the only way out of it is is to straighten up our attitude and our point of view. But, of course, that's in, within the purview of the sovereignty of God, but it's still within our responsibility to say so. That's what he has revealed to us to do. So it's not possible when a people lose their land, and that's what you're losing fundamentally. You're losing your land. And when you lose your land to another people, it's because God is the allodial landlord. And he's the one that decides who gets to have tenancy of his land, whether it's some other land on the other side of the world or this land here. And what we should pay more attention to is his sovereignty in this circumstance. Uh, Nothing escapes his will, nothing. And what happens is what he wants to happen, because it happens to glorify him. But in the meantime, the mystery is, of course, always, what am I supposed to do, and, and do I have a, an assertion of will in this? And although it's not explainable, I do, and everyone else does too. Yeah, that's where we are. You know, Jesus Christ said that we are to love others as we love ourselves. And if you hate your own self, as many have come to do, then you're going to not love other people either. You're going to hate them. That's where most all the world is. They hate themselves, and they want to get the other guy because they're envious of what he has. They really do hate themselves. That's the way all godlessness works out in the end. And that's why Jesus Christ said that. That's the fundamental that dictates loving yourself. How do you love yourself? Well, the love of God is that we do what he tells us to do. That's what John says. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And if you're not doing what God tells you to do, respecting yourself, you hate yourself, regardless of how you feel about it. That's hate. That's what God says. That's what our maker says. And if we what well, to the degree we hate or love ourselves, that will be the degree we'll treat other people, including those closest to us, sadly. And the ugliness grows and grows and grows. Well, that's where we are. The question is, what do we do next? And I think the fundamental answer is we love ourselves, understood the way the Bible teaches it. We love ourselves by doing for ourselves and to ourselves and respecting ourselves what our maker tells us to do. That's what I've been thinking about, Roger, as I'm out and about and I'm seeing (laughs) this, this overtaking of our land.
2: Well, I, I I keep flashing, Bye. I flash go back ahead. to the to the verse in in Revelation eighteen that says, "Come out of her." And you know, I've been contemplating this for many years. Okay, and uh, that's the only answer I've found that satisfies me, because you're separating yourself from them. You can't go in there and continue to intermingle with them and and live that life, and you can't. You're not going to change them. So the only option left is to come out of it and you come out and separate yourself and you come back and put those kind of blinders on uh, and you start realizing that you don't want to be part of all that and what it is and what its inevitability is and uh, to just remove yourself as much as possible. I mean, that's really the only thing I've found that is concrete to me, that rings true, that is workable.
3: If if you do that then you're doing what God tells you to do, and you're loving yourself. That comes back to the fundamental behind it, but I agree that's the concrete action, but then that plays out, what you're talking about plays out in detail. How do you do that? And there are many, many ways to do it, but fundamentally it always comes back to the same thing. It comes back to doing what God tells you to do. In other words, follow the will of the sovereign, which is law.
2: Well, I looked at it, and the three Of course, you know, the the pillars, I mean, the pillars, the foundational pillars of this program are freedom. And the four legs that the freedom stool sits on are, and not necessarily in this order because they can change depending on the individual situation, but financial, political, health, and spiritual. Those are the four areas of freedom to me. You know, well it that may makes be,
3: good sense. That makes good sense.
2: It may be that at some point when you're young and full of testosterone or whatever that the health thing isn't a priority, but you get a little bit older, all of a sudden the health takes priority over everything. So it just comes
3: back to, Roger, with all those. It just comes back to the simplicity. Of loving yourself, which means to do what God tells you to do, respecting yourself. And what he tells us to do, respecting ourselves, is to take care of our physical bodies. And he gives us detailed instructions how to do that. And the other things you mentioned, too. So, I mean, what you say is true. It's just I bring it back to what the Bible says. Love yourself. Love yourself. Because if you can't do that, said Jesus Christ, to the degree you do that, you'll treat other people. But most people, of course, think they're loving themselves, but they're not because they they decide what it is best for them. And God says, no, no, you don't get to decide what's best for you. Fact is, you don't even know. The only way you're going to love yourself is to learn what I tell you to do and do that instead. And when he says, come out of them, that's the overarching principle. One way to express it, But how do you do that? You do what he tells you to do at every point, whether it be uh, in respect to your physical body, your health, and the other parts of your being. But it all comes back to simply, you can't separate that either, though. If you take care of your body, Roger, the way God tells you, you're taking care of the rest of your physical and spiritual being, too. And the Bible says. Clearly, the revelation of the of God, the one that made us, divides us into three parts. We are, as the ancients have said, and tripartite, three parts. We're body, soul, and spirit. And those three are distinctly different, but they're inextricably bound together. You can't separate them as a matter of... You take one of those away and the other two die, any of them. They, they stand and fall together. There's no separating them, but we can recognize they're different and for purposes of understanding, look at them separately. And when you made mention of the, what you wanted to do to take care of yourself, you covered those three. But anyway, it comes back to, and in any case, what did God say? And are we going to do what he said or ain't we? And if we don't, no matter how good we feel about it, we're hating ourselves. And there are a lot of people out there, a lot of people that think they're loving themselves, but they're ignorant because they're destroyed because they don't know They don't even know that it's important, that that God, they don't even know God has said something to them, anything to them to tell them how to take care of their body and their soul and their spirit. And again, if you take care of any of them properly, according to God's dictates, you'll take care of the other two. That's how easy it really is. My burden is easy, said Jesus Christ. And when you think about the 10 fundamental principles that he's given us, they're all a, a matter of just doing nothing. If you just sit and do nothing, in other words, and I know that sounds funny, I know we want to rise to a higher level, but if you don't covet, lie, steal, commit adultery, or murder your neighbor, just leave him alone. You have won half the battle of being uh, following the will of God. That's how simple and easy it is. But I find that people can't do that, and I find also, of course, in experience and in the revelation of God, he tells us that the, the man who has not Jesus Christ can't resist murder. His feet are restless. He can't even sleep, it says, at night until he shed blood. He's got to get up and hurt somebody, whether directly or indirectly, whether by subversion or by direct assault. So that's the terrible condition we're in. And once you get a new heart and you experience the new birth, then you have the option, the option of doing what he tells you to do consistently back to you roger
2: well you were all <laughs> delegated in that boat because we're all to some extent using their their monetary system so it all comes from there brent uh, brent uh, chris joined us a minute ago and i actually got to click the button about 10 times and on the 10th or 15th click it merged right. him with us so i didn't even have to call him back hey chris you have a nice christmas
4: Oh, absolutely! Uh, good morning, Brent, and glad to have you pressing my buttons so many times. It yeah. was quite exciting to have that. Happen. <laughs> yes,
2: <laughs> I I accelerate at pressing people's buttons. At times.
4: <laughs> and so does Brent.
3: Oh yeah, you know, Roger, uh, you'd ask me if I had a nice Christmas, and uh, Christmas isn't. me what it used to be, and I'm glad, because I I understand it it so much better, and I understand that it is purely Babylonian, and I understand, of course, over the years, years ago I read Hislop's, Alexander Hislop's book, it was made fun of today, called Two Babylons, and I go back and revisit it, it's a well-researched book, regardless of what the pundits say and they make fun of him. No, no, no. He he did a very good job. But what we learn, not just from him, but from history in general, in our own country, just trace it back. The people that came here first in any significant influential way were the Puritans of England. And the Puritans were Anglicans. They were Anglicans that were intent upon making sure that the Anglican Church, the Church of England, was biblical. And uh, Winston Churchill, who, whatever else you may say about him, the one thing that he was good at, he was a good historian. He really knew his history. He knew it well, and if you don't believe it, read his volumes, regardless of whether you think he was a scoundrel. I'm not going to say one way or the other right now, but he certainly understood his history, especially of the English-speaking people, and he wrote a few volumes on the subject, the history of the English-speaking people, and he concluded of the Puritan party in England that those folk, of all folk, were the most biblical race of men, I'm quoting him, I think he said it like this, the most biblical race of men that ever lived. And I agree with him. There, there may have been, uh, like the Scottish Presbyterians were probably as biblical, but they were no more biblical and that was his point. And of course, even Israel of old, they were the most unbiblical people probably that ever lived. Uh, given the amount of revelation that they had, they were terribly, terribly abhorrent and remain so. Babylonian Judaism remains so. But uh, when, uh, the Puritans that came here uh, made Christmas, the celebration of Christmas against the law. It was even a misdemeanor in America, in New England, to make a mincemeat pie. Really? Because mincemeat really? pies were so connected in the English culture with history, and they said, we're not going to go down that road. And they saw at that time, by the way, that the continent of Europe was going down that road of getting real serious about celebrating Christmas. This, For an English-speaking people, the celebration of Christmas is within the memory of people I have known. I mean, I knew people that lived when, at a time when Christmas wasn't a big deal. I remember some of them. And when I look back in history, I find that's true. did we, Do we stop to consider when Washington crossed the Delaware, way back there was 1775, yeah, 1775 on Christmas Eve, that he, being a speaker of English among an English-speaking people, were about to surprise and attack a group of Hessians from the continent of Europe who celebrated Christmas in spades, and the English people speaking people at that time did not. But they knew that the German-speaking people of Prussia did, and they knew that they would probably be drunk and whoring and playing cards on Christmas Eve. Well, they didn't probably. They knew they would be. That's what they did, because they had swallowed, by that time, hook, line, and proverbial sinker, the whole idea of the Christmas tree and they were taken in, and all the other trappings, then the angel on top of the tree, which is Astorot, and all that Babylonian paganism. And the English-speaking people, speaking people had not done that yet. They attacked and, of course, killed quite a few of them, and it was the victory that, that kept our hopes alive of separating from Britain. He needed a victory, and he got one, all because of Christmas. And then we come on up, of course, Charles Dickens, the author that wrote uh, Christmas carol was not the name of it with Ebenezer Scrooge. Uh, that did as much as anything to catapult the celebration of Christmas into the forefront in the English speaking world. And then after that, it slowly began to pick up steam to the point. Now Americans spend right at two and a half billion dollars at Christmas time. And if you had the Christmas tree, it'd be more like three and a half billion dollars. <laughs> Yeah,
2: those yep. things are expensive this year I saw an article on it it was outrageous
3: house fires are you know off the charts at Christmas time for sure uh, all these things are not good they're a waste of money of course and danger and the destruction when you do what God does says not to do and by the way God says not to do that because he says in the tenth chapter of Leviticus do not take on the customs of the people, the pagans, we would call them today, around you. Don't do that. And then we get to Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter, uh, I don't remember what chapter it is. It seemed like that's 10 too, chapter 10, verses 5 or 6, but he goes into detail there about the Christmas tree. And how that the Israelite people had taken on the Christmas tree. One of the interesting things about that passage, he goes into detail, it's amazing, how they go to the woods, they cut the tree down. Here's what they do, though. They didn't have evergreen trees in, in that part of the world. So he makes the point that they use palm trees. And the significant thing about the palm tree is, in respect to Christmas, is it's an evergreen too, see? And that was the pagan practice from Babylon the the fertility gods they wanted an evergreen well they said they wanted an evergreen tree a tree that stayed green year around so he even talks there about the a palm tree they made out of cast silver just like you have you see this silver christmas trees uh in our own country became popular in the 50s and 60s well that's what they did they did the same thing only they had the real one and they would they would steady it so it wouldn't fall down. He talks about how they'd nail it with a hammer down in a little thing they could carry, and they could set it up and hold it. And that's Astaroth, which is the female goddess of Babylon. Different names, Venus in the Greek-speaking world, of the goddess of fertility. And um, to do those practices is a violation of the law of God. I see that clearly. Clearly. You have, again, Roger, it comes back to what you said coming out. How do you come out all these years? I was kind of, you know, I'm learning more, learning, and now I'm saying no, I don't want to do that. Do I want to get together with my family? Yes, I like to do that. I wish I were back home, because my brothers, with my mother and father, yeah, they're right now, they're still there, and I could have went back, and I, I just couldn't. My circumstances didn't allow it, but I do like to do that at Christmas, uh, and it is true also, Roger. You know, we have what we call the sultus, sultus, solstice, solstice, we have it twice a year, we have a solstice, solstice by the way means means soul, means sun, and stus means to stand still, the solstice is the, as it were, not really, but as it were, the standing still of the sun, because on the day, the, the shortest day of the year, which I believe is the 21st of December, in our, on our calendar, the sun is... Growing weaker as it comes to the solstice and then it grows stronger. But on the solstice, the ancients always said, Well, that's the sun standing still, so that's why we call it the solstice. It doesn't, it's neither waning, it's neither waxing. But then we have another solstice around between the 21st and the 26th of March, and on that day, it's the same thing
2: June. June. I'm
3: sorry, yeah, I'm thinking equinox June. Thank you, 21st of June. And on that day, same thing, it's growing, the sun is growing stronger up to that day, and then after that day, that day as it were, in the perception of men, it stands still, and then it grows weaker until the winter solstice. But halfway between each of those solstices is the equinox. Halfway between each solstice is the equinox. And the equinox, just as it sounds, is Equa means equal, and Nox means night in Latin. That's where the night time, 12 hours approximately, equals the daytime of 12 hours. Well, the solstice or the equinox, which is halfway between the summer solstice, solstice and the winter solstice, the equinox is the breaking over point where it starts to get darker. It or the darkness is greater than the light. Before that, it's getting. It's moving that direction, but at that halfway point, it breaks over, and that's when the Babylonian uh, celebrations of darkness begin. And notice, those are celebrations of darkness. You have, uh, of course, the the Christmas being the the pit of the darkness. You know, the Bible about, says. That, let
2: me let me just throw an observation in there, Brent. I'm yeah. sorry to interrupt you, but it oh, hits me about, that on the equinox time. Uh, are both of the traditional important Jewish holidays, Ron, uh, uh, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur?
3: Uh-huh. Uh huh. The other
2: thing I wanted to add that was kind of interesting you've been to Alaska. Uh, when I lived up there on the mm-hmm. 21st of June in Fairbanks, they have a, a semi professional baseball team up there. I'm assuming they still do. They have a baseball game that starts at midnight with no lights.
3: <laughs> Do they wear snowshoes, Roger?
2: No, it's in the summer.
3: Well, I've wa- oh, that's right. I've watched them play baseball up in Alaska in the winter in snowshoes. It's fun to watch.
2: <laughs> well, I played football when I, when I was in high school a little bit, you know. And yeah. there's only four football teams in the whole state of Alaska. And they're, yeah. they're all in Anchorage. And there was the two high school teams and the two base teams, Air Force and yeah. Army. And we'd all play each other twice. And some of those later yeah. games we had to play in the snow. They have to get out there. You see it occasionally in college football uh they'll yeah. get out there with a you know some implement the a scraper, and they have to scrape off the the yard lines you know so you know how to play and If you fumble or something, the ball goes over in this big bank of snow. I remember that stuff. <laughs>
3: Well, you know, football is not what it used to be because they've got it inside now on AstroTurf, but we used to have mud bowl, mud bowls and sleep bowls and and the snow bowls, and it was fun. But not 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 any more fun for a boy than playing in a mud bowl. I mean, a serious game. Oh, boy. You know, you hit somebody and you both you take him down, you both go sliding across the field through the mud for five yards or six or eight yards, and Well, it was just enjoyable because boys like stuff like that. But, uh, yes, it doesn't, it's not as fun to watch. But it is important to recognize the difference of the holidays. And, of course, there is, God did give. There's two views. I was telling somebody the other day we were talking about this. Oh, I know what it was. On our Saturday morning uh, or Sunday morning uh, church, then there's a time for questions and people ask questions. And one of the listeners on, on this show also, his wife, ask a question about, um, about the, um, no, slipped. oh, it was about, well, it slipped me, and I, I thought I had it, and then it, it blew through my mind. I didn't have my gun up in time. I didn't take the bird down on the wing. <laughs> the thought mind. Did you ever have I, that?
2: I, know, I have that feeling a lot.
3: <laughs> well, it'll come back to me a little bit. I do want to mention it because the question that she asked was an important one. And we talked about it for quite a while. It was uh, well, I don't know, but we were. Oh, here's here's something I did want to say though. The the calendar is important. I mean, I don't mean a little bit. I mean the calendar that God has given us controls everything. It's one of His ways, and that's why men through the the millennium. And the centuries have attempted to control the calendar. You know, in the English-speaking world, we had, I say we, those speakers of English, not me, I wasn't there, but over in the country of England, they had one calendar, and uh, the rest of Christendom had another. And England was not connected with Rome at that time. That was clear up into the 7th century. People say England was connected with Rome. No, they weren't. They weren't at all. Uh, for those centuries. And uh, the Pope of Rome, who had gained power by that time, there wasn't any Pope in the early days, of course, but because of the Roman Empire and Constantine kind of taken, well, he made uh, Christianity the religion of the empire, and that changed everything. He wanted to control it, and then he reached out and tried to control the rest of Christendom through religion. So military conquest was only one way of conquest uh, from the Roman Empire. Then after that, the Roman church became the chief vehicle of conquest, and it is important that if you've got a different God, as you have so well said, Roger, you'll have a different law. And if you have a different law, you have a different God. Well, they wanted uh, the English-speaking Christian world to worship the Pope, as all of, Chris, as all of Pope, Popedom, all the of, all of Popelings of Popedom, as they used to say, do now. And so they sent an emissary there, and his name was Augustine. A different Augustine than the Bishop of Hippo in North Africa, who is the founder of the Augustinian Order, of which Martin Luther was a member. This is a different fellow. He was a brutal man, and he came in, he called, he put word out, and sent runners all over the island and said, everybody, all the churchmen, come down here. Because the British church, it wasn't an English church at that time, it was the British church. It covered all the island, and they were all one group and so they all convened because they didn't know what he wanted what he wanted was for all of the Isle of Britain to take on the the calendar that Rome had established for the date of he Easter and um, also they he wanted them to take on the cowl which is the sheepskin that the priest it's uh, more symbolic now but anciently, Babylonian religion, all the priesthoods of the Babylonian religion uh, put sheepskin on their shoulders. That was the mark of their authority. And they wanted the churchmen there to take that on and become, of course, part of the priesthood of Rome and to shave the top of their head, the tonsure. You shave the crown of your head as a sign of authority. That also is from Babylon. Clearly, there's nothing about that in the Bible. Well, there is something about it. When, when um, when the Bible talks about wolves in sheep's clothing, yep. it's not talking about wolves dressing up like sheep. It's talking about the adherents of Babylonianism that wear the cowl, which is the mark of their priestly authority, wolves in sheep's clothing. And uh, that's what they wanted them. Roger, you're going to say something?
2: I was going quick? to say, isn't that interesting?
3: Yeah. It's just a little bit different than the popular view. The popular view is a is a valid way to look at the whole problem, but it's not exactly what the Bible says. Uh, so I don't quarrel with people looking at it that way. They say, well, that means these people are wolves, and they're disguising themselves as sheep. Well, that is what they do, but that's not what that verse says. I, that would verse remind said, you,
2: I would remind you that the Fabian Society, which is at the heart of a lot of this, uh, uh-huh. for... Until the last recent years, their symbol was always the wolf's and sheep's clothing. You know what they've changed it to now? What? The turtle.
3: Huh.
2: When I, I, strike, when I strike, I strike hard. That's the motto. Oh, a snapper? Uh-huh. I guess. Snapper? It's a, just a turtle.
3: Huh. Well, I know snappers strike hard. They I've been do. around them all. Yep. i alive. Boy, and they, when they grab hold, they don't let go till the next 4th of July.
2: Yeah, or until <laughs> the lightning strikes or something. Uh, yeah. <laughs> one, of the, one of the things I've been doing the last couple of days with some time on my hands is when I, I usually don't watch TV. There's a couple of programs over the years that I really liked, but the one that I never missed when I was in the States was on PBS, and it's called Antiques Roadshow. And I just enjoy that, you know, all those people digging well, stuff out. Antiques Roadshow. Have you ever seen it, oh, Brent?
3: Okay. Yeah, I think I have.
2: Well, you know, they go around from city to city. I'm sure everybody's pretty probably seen these. And they just put out a call and say, hey, you got anything in the unusual in your house? Bring it by and we'll value it for you, tell you the history of it and that kind of thing. Yeah, and yeah. so I used to watch it every week. My mom and I would watch it when I was living there with her. She enjoyed it too. And, uh, um. I stumbled on the fact that a lot of that stuff's on the web now, and I stumbled into the Brit version of Antiques Roadshow, which is still called Antiques Roadshow, but it's UK. And so uh, over the last couple of days, I've been watching a bunch of those from England, and one of them, and they go different places, and, yeah. but in England, they go to all these castles and stuff because they got to have a okay. big room and some history to talk about and all that stuff. Well, one yeah. of them I watched was the Battle of Hastings. They were over there at Hastings, oh, yeah. which is pretty close to where Paul lives, okay? And and that was very cool, but one of the ones other ones I watched was from this majestic castle. I mean, it was huge. Be I can't remember BN, maybe Beanfield or something, but it was uh-huh. Queen Elizabeth's favorite suitor court member and he i believe it was the duke of marlborough and he she gave him all the money to build this place and man it was huge i mean huge and then he fell out of disfavor she died or something he had to come out of his own pocket to finish it but the original family name was churchill
3: Well, yeah, Duke of Marlborough is an ancestor of Winston Churchill. Yep.
2: yep. Well, that's what they're saying. They said the Duke of Marlborough, Duke of Marlborough. And in the presentation, it came out that his name was something Churchill. And I went, well, I'll be darned right there.
3: Well, just to say it was one of his grandparents, one of his great grandparents. Yeah. yeah. Great, great, or whatever. Not going back that far. He was the one that the Duke of Marlborough was the one that defeated Napoleon at Waterloo. Correct. Yeah. And that's and and Winston Churchill also always fashioned himself a warrior, because he had this belief that that was part of his blood. Which I don't think he was really that good at it. Matter of fact, he would have really some things up. He,
2: he had a nice uh, lifelong battle with a bottle of gin.
3: <laughs> that was the toughest battle. I don't know that he won that one.
2: There's a lot but, of people uh, don't yeah. win that one right there, buddy.
3: <laughs> oh, you're saying gin was his favorite thing? His favorite drink? Yeah. Oh. Well, they say, you know, you can drink. Well, I I shouldn't say this. Somebody might take me up on it and and use it in the wrong way. I'll just keep my mouth shut about what I know about gin.
2: Well, you know, the famous one, of course, a lot of his life is in snippets, you know. But the famous quote that I remember, I think the first one I've heard was, evidently he was drunk all the time. Uh, And Lady Astor uh, of the court there who, and she, she some function and she said, sir, Winston, you are drunk. And he said, yes, lady Astor, but you are ugly. And in the morning I'll be sober.
3: Yeah. You know why that's true? That's true because, or that, no, I say true. You know why that's funny is because it's true. Yeah. <laughs> she, he was drunk and she wasn't that good looking bro. Matter of <laughs> fact, she was pretty portly. I guess he was too, you know, and they both got the way I got it. They were walking out of the cloakroom. room. They're parliament after putting their coats away walking in, they both got stuck in the door together and they couldn't get through. And so they kind of uncoupled and or she was incensed because he was drunk. That's why he tried to walk through at the same time. She did and didn't even know what he was doing. <laughs> but, but they say that during the war, he, um, He'd be in bed. He wouldn't get up till afternoon. But he'd wake up about seven or eight, and uh, he'd get breakfast in bed and start drinking and, and doing his work. That's what he did there at uh, ten. He, did he live at Downing? I don't know where he I lived.
2: Think he but, did. I think he did. He, but look, if this is his ancestors, you should have seen the you should have seen the family home, man. I, if I run across that that episode again, I'll shoot it to you just yep. so you can look at the snippets of this place where he came from. Because I mean, it was it, it was just downright breathtaking, honestly.
3: He was born with a silver spoon in his mouth, and like they say, it's some people are born rich and some people are born smart. Uh, he was or fortunate, fortunate, rich or fortunate, and he was uh, both. Yeah, but although he wasn't, he wasn't nobility. But the way I get it from the English people speak, English people I've talked to, he's the only um, man who was not a member of the peerage that was allowed to stand with the sovereign, the Queen in this case, stand up on that porch where she'd stand and wave the people. After World War II, she let him come out there and stand and and wave the people.
2: That's because he was the the Edomite's boy
3: oh he was the he was the- uh the de facto sovereign of england during the war yeah and uh and like you say he was he was funded by by a, by people of a different religious and well, cultural point of view than himself
2: I remember reading- years ago and it might have been in willie sutton's book was it sutton was it willie sutton or uh, sutton the one that wrote all those great books Uh, decades ago, that when Jacob Schiff with Cone Loeb and the other creeps there in New York got together and decided to fund the Bolshevik Revolution, they set it up in the south side docks there in New York uh, where all the people that carried, you know, all the cargo and all the Teamsters, if you will, type folks, and that's where they recruited evidently a lot of people, and they had like 500 of them. And they recruited 500, and I think they had something like $17 million worth of gold at the time and uh, that they had put on the same ship with the 500 people that were going to be the instigators of the Bolshevik Revolution. And they sent them out of New York, and uh, as they went across, they went up to Canada to take the short route across the Atlantic, and the Canadian Navy arrested the ship and impounded it there at Nova Scotia. And the yeah. person that they released the ship under a letter from then uh, Secretary of the Navy, Churchill. Oh, really? Yep. It was under his directives <laughs> that the ship, full of men and, and money that uh, overthrew the Russian government, was allowed to leave Canada and continue their mission.
3: Oh, you, yeah, you call him a secretary of the navy. I, I know what you're, well, you're saying. Well, yeah, saying, Her quote.
2: Majesty's Navy or what, whatever. HMS. I just said that so we yeah. could would relate to <laughs> yeah. it. But he was, uh, in essence, the secretary of the navy. It was one of his jobs early on, because uh, that was in the in the teens. So it was an early on stepping stone for him to get to where he eventually got.
3: Well, He wasn't, but about just over 30 years old and he was Lord of the Admiralty. Yeah, there you go. uh, He he screwed that up so bad that they, they, he, during world war one, after that broke out, um, they relegated him to a junior officer in the trenches. He didn't do anything. He, He spent all of his time, uh, behind the lines at a house writing because that's what he liked to do. He was hardly ever up front. And, uh, you know, his father was a, a well-known man in England and a parliamentarian. And he's the one that was, a the crown appointed him um, a secretary of the, Tre- what we would call secretary of the treasury, which yeah, I think, called, yeah, the, the the head of the exchequer. And he's the one that when he got all the, the accounts and the, it was all on paper, you know, and he was looking at all the accounts and he said, uh, what are all these little dots between the numbers? Had a bunch of decimal points, you know, between the he didn't know what they were. <laughs> uh, you know, as a show, that's the way it is in all high places. People that are in charge of things don't have a clue what they're doing in most cases. Very true, just have a lot of, yeah. Well, they're doing the but same
2: not- thing in our country now with this f- uh, fisbee 56 rule, uh, but you probably don't know too much about that, Brent. Um. Do you know who uh, the Soleri girl Catherine Austin Fitz is? Are you familiar with her? No, uh-uh. She's a pretty sharp gal. That's an understatement, I'm sure. Uh, she, uh, a set gal, and had been actually in, at one point, inside the government uh, as the assistant secretary of HUD, years ago and she tried she saw a lot of this stuff from the inside and then after she got out she's trying to expose it so she was talking about all the money that's been squandered here a couple years ago that's missing and uh one of her listeners is a guy named mark skidmore and he's a phd professor in public finance at the at michigan Uh state university and Uh he thought she was crazy and so he, he started going in and looking. He said, well, I'm going to go in. I, I think that's wrong. And he went into the public documents and started going through it. And in just two, uh, he found it to be true, and he assembled a group of Ph.D. candidate students to assist him. And they did a very intensive search on public records. And in just two agencies, HUD and the DOD, they found $21 trillion missing. Trillion.
3: And, and, Roger, you and I both know that nothing will ever be done about it.
2: Of course not. Well, I'm gonna, let me continue. No, no there's something done about it. Okay. And so they – now, I remind you that at the last count I saw in an article here maybe a year and a half ago, there's now 323 uh-huh. federal agencies. I'm sure there's more than that now. And this was only from two of them. Granted, some of the larger DOD, Department of Defense, and Housing and Urban Development. So they went and confronted the feds about it. And they came back, and they blacked out everything on the web. (laughs) They they redacted it all, and then you said nothing will be done about it. Here's what was done about it. Then they went in and passed this. FASB, F-A-S-B-Y, I think maybe, FASB 56 is how they refer to it. And it's an accounting rule, which basically means they don't have to tell you anything anymore, and they get to keep
3: double books. Well, there you go. That's why I'm saying nothing will ever be done about it. It is um, a pattern of history, and I've noticed it in my lifetime, that somebody will take benefits from the government, like this gal you're talking about. And by the way, I've never met a woman that wasn't sharp, Period. And I'm sure she's sharp. that has nothing to do with what i'm going to say that being sharp sometimes in most instances instances just makes a person dangerous more more dangerous than they were before but she she uh, rode uh, on the public dole all her life, she enjoyed the benefits of the public dole, she lived off everybody else, and then all of a sudden. She's going to expose corruption. No, don't. don't. I've seen that over I, and over, and don't. it never works, Roger. It well, doesn't do any good.
2: Don't paint old Catherine yeah. in a bad light here because I, her, I think she's good and I think her intentions are really good because she didn't do it her whole life. She just did it for a short period of time and saw how rotten it was and got out and started blowing the whistle. So it. Well, it,
3: say, okay, coming back to the whistleblowers, they never. Never do us any good, and the reason is—I'll say it again, Roger. I think it's true because they have taken a massive benefit, and God has so structured the evil empire. Yes, He's behind it in a in a in a in a way we don't understand. He it, it, the evil empire can't do anything that He doesn't allow it to do, and it, uh, it He uses the evil empire to judge His own people. But in this case, she's a a beneficiary of the evil system called the money system. And I mean, what kind of a person would accept a position to be in charge of something as evil as HUD? Well, now when you're young,
2: you know, when you're young and you don't know any better and you think these people are doing everything on the, I mean, I can remember my own self and I can even give you the date. It was about in 1979, uh, when Jimmy Carter was president and they Uh had that fiasco in Iran. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, which was ongoing, all right, Uh and I can remember I was just coming out of the record business then, but I got real interested in that event, and if you remember right, that was the event that spurned a program that's still with us today, I believe, called ABC Nightline, okay, and uh, I can remember saying to myself, how can they call us the great Satan? Don't they understand all the good we do around the world? I mean, and I, I was so brainwashed like everybody else, so I give her a little bit of the benefit of the doubt. Uh, but she got in there, got a very educated, very sharp, smart woman, as I said, and worked her way up to a high bureaucratic position, saw the rottenness, tried to straighten it out at, at some point on the inside and found out that it was not straightenable, you know, that which is crooked cannot be made straight, and got out of it and is doing basically what I'm doing out on the outside throwing stones. I'll tell you what. Her work there with Mark Skidmore, especially because she's got so much credibility, has gone all over the world and is affecting what's happening right now with the dollar, I believe. Because all these investors, when they invest in the U.S., what do they invest in? Bonds. It's the bond market. Okay. And so uh, uh, that. Those people are starting to hear about and see information on a a missing $21 trillion, and I'm holding all these bonds?
3: Well, Roger, I I see your point, and I don't uh, question her intentions. She's still a useful idiot. She's been a useful idiot. She remains a useful idiot because she's foolish enough to try to blow the whistle on the system instead of uh, leaving it entirely. I, I, I I can just catalog all these whistleblowers. They're all worthless as tits on a boar hog. Well, they're worse than that because they distract us from what the real problem is. They make us think. They don't make us think. They encourage us to think that there's something we can do to change the system and make it better. There's nothing we can do. What God wants us to do is replace the whole dirty, ugly, smelly, stinking smear. Replace it. Not fix it. It's not fixable. I I agree. Evil. (laughs) The old, st- well you, the old statement we've heard: you can't fix stupid. Well, you can't fix really. You can't fix evil. Stupid can be fixed. Evil cannot be fixed. Um. Evil, evil is so rotten, so dirty, so murderously ugly. You gotta get away from it, get out of it, and go another direction. You can't come back and say, "Look what they're doing over here." I don't care what they're doing. I'm so tired of it. I'm glad I'm in this position, but there's no way we're going to make the evil money system better. Nope. It's useless, nope. as you know. Yep. And I'm being told, Roger, Roger, I'm being told to tone down my voice because they might hear me outside.
2: <laughs> well, you're getting agitated. Well, you know, our mutual friend, Cody. Now, we, yeah, we talked about Cody on the air here a little bit last week, and some of the listeners, hey, you're picking on Cody. I'm not picking on Cody. Okay. I like Cody. I know him personally. All right, thanks to Brent. Brent is the one that had the acquaintance and that introduced him when he was down here last year at Christmas. Now, Cody, I've been working on him for about a year now. About a year ago, we met, went over to his house, had had Christmas dinner with him last year and all that. And here a year later, Cody is still, well, we, what if we change the state's governor? What if we get back and institute state's rights? What if we do this? I said, hey, man. You're, you' are it's the symptom it's not the cause. the cause is the system. The government is the system uh what the system dictates, and you're wanting to change things in the government, and it's never going to work. It's like putting a band aid on a gaping wound, okay that which is crooked cannot be made straight until we go back in and straighten out uh the bankruptcy or the switch or whatever it is, and we can do that individually. There's not going to be any relief, and they're not going to – and I told Cody on the air for flat, him and I, were. he called in one day. We were talking. I said to Cody, there is no political solution here. There is none. Can I kick in a – Yes, sir, please, Chris. Jack joined us, too. I didn't even recognize Jack, and thank him for asking me over for Christmas dinner. What were you going to say there, Chris?
4: Well I- – I give a lot of thought to the sounds and the words we use every day without fully cognizing the hidden meanings that might be hidden within. And that word system, when I've learned to look at things as the evil uh, twisters of the word seem to view things in their perverse uh, vision, that word system, I think, might be a reverse word and or at least an alternative to what it's spelled as in these days. And when I hear cyst it could also be spelled C Y S T, like a infectious growth that's affecting one's body in a dangerous manner. And um is moo backwards. So it's the cancer of moo in my estimation, as what a system is, because you can't see it. It just operates in the nebulosity out there in the nether world, and people refer to it euphemistically it's, as a system, it, and they don't know what it is or where well, it comes from. Well,
2: let me proffer a little bit, because I've thought about this a lot, because that was the first thing I can remember decades ago in the 60s, the system. What about the system? You know, and I've come to realize that all they did was drop the identifier, Brent. They dropped the adjective. What do you mean? The feudal system.
3: Oh, I see. Well, but the system can't be the problem. The system is the setup. That's what Correct. system means. But but it, 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 it men are evil. It's That's the, manipul-
2: the problem. It's the manipulate. It's the, manipula- man. it's the of the system. It's just like merchant law. And the example I really like to use, because it's so illustrative, is self-help remedies. Okay? Self-help remedies have a very valid application. But because of the, you use the word nebulousness, nebulousness the way it's perceived from the populace, when somebody in a perceived position of authority starts coming and grabbing your stuff, It equals tyranny because you don't understand how those self-help remedies work. And my point is to go back to the dialectic. Everything can be used for good or evil. Everything's got a a, a double side to it. And they take these things that are so manipulatable and they manipulate them and, and twist them in their advantage.
3: Well, that being true, Roger, and I agree with you, everything can be used for a gun, can be used for good or evil, fire can be used for good or evil, words can be used for good or e- good or evil, that being true, that system's not the problem. Matter of fact, communism, uh, if men followed it and uh, didn't insert their selfishness in it, it'd work great, but it's never going to work Correct. because Correct. men apart are evil Um, and our system is the same way we even have an action at common law called abusive process you can sue the other fellow for abusing the system to his advantage abusive process so the problem is us the problem is not the system and the problem is us but to deal with our evil and this is what of course, many people won't even admit they will. Ah, men aren't evil fundamentally. Yes, God says they are. I'm not blind or stupid. I can see it. I can see my own self. And if you can't see it, you're blind and stupid. To, you're really blind and stupid. Let's just acknowledge what the problem is, and say what we need is a new heart. We need a new heart and a new desire. We need a new heart desire, and only God can give that. And when He gives it then we can operate according to his will. And if we ignore that and try to talk about there's something we can do and not acknowledge that, then we are whistling past the graveyard as though it doesn't exist. It does exist. It's right on our doorstep. It's pressing against our door, and we're not acknowledging it. We're listening to the whistleblowers, and we're listening to the philosophers and the economists, and that's useless. That's evil without the foundation if the foundations are destroyed the foundation is the heart of man and it even even though we have a new heart desire god tells us how to establish our law and our government in a way that will guard against the evil of man's heart we're not even talking about that we need to talk about that that's what will make the difference for us not not changing not fixing not adjusting mm-hmm. but replacing entirely for example, uh, men have evil hearts. What do they need? They don't need to fix their heart. They need a new heart desire. The Bible says, "I give you a new heart. I give you become a new creature." Everything, behold, it says, all things become new when that happens. That's where the problem is. And then after you have the new heart, you want to want to do what your Maker wants you to do. But if we, if we just go on and listen to what people get addicted to is the outrage of the whistleblower mentality. When I hear somebody talking about being a whistleblower, and I've over the years listened to them, it doesn't take me long to see these people don't have a clue what's going on. And they still think you can fix the system. They think you can fix people. No, you can't. We do not have that power or authority to even fix our own selves. And without that acknowledgement, we're just caught up in never-ending, oh, poli- it's, the, it's the cycle of politics. Oh, let's, let's have a new election and get new guys in. And get-. That's not going to help. Changing politicians is like changing underwear. They're just going to get full again, and then you got to change them again. And it doesn't help. They're perpetually dirty. So without that, we're doomed. Back to you, Roger.
2: I think it's really, with very few exceptions, it's mostly psychopaths that want those positions.
3: <laughs> no, no, no question. They, they think they can change things. I heard a, a legislator say oh, one time. No, they think
2: they can control things and embellish and right. grandize themselves.
3: Yes, but they tell themselves and they tell others they really believe it. I can make things better for everybody. That's what dictatorship's all about. That's what Mussolini was all about. That's what Castro was all about. I'm going to do good, said Castro. I'm going to do what's best for the Cuban people. We can see what that amounts to. That amounts to, number one, what's best for him and his power and his feeling. He wants to feel good about himself. So he keeps telling himself, I'm doing what's best. There's great, great satisfaction and great Joy, deep joy, and say to that kind of stupidity, baloney. Uh, God's right. You're wrong. I'm wrong. He's right. And have that mentality, and it brings a peace of mind that is beyond understanding. And mm-hmm. I can give you a personal testimony of how that works, it works. <laughs> Go ahead.
2: I read the other day the the speech uh, that Ezra Pound gave from on shortwave out of Italy. And Mm -hmm. I did not know. I read the story behind it. It was over on a site called the Tomato Bubble that many of our listeners are probably familiar with have seen. Um, I did not know that he was captured in Italy.
3: Oh, yeah. They put him in a cage Uh, for uh, days uh, uh, like an animal. It drove crazy.
2: Yep. little bitty cage. And then they brought him back to the U.S. and threw him in the insane asylum because he wouldn't have to put him on trial.
3: Yeah, they were going to try him for treason, but then the court declared him insane. He was there for uh, years and years—fifteen years or but, something, you know, there,
2: wasn't he? Until he died.
3: Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah. They never let him out. Well, not till he died. No, he he got out and went back to Italy.
2: I see. That's right. That's right.
3: Regained, and that was—he well, <laughs> it helped him a lot, of course. And uh, you can't blame him after all they did to him. Ezra Pound's been a, a a mystery to me in many ways because I haven't been able to discover why he did what he did. When he was a young man, he was ex- excessively, excessively sinful, to use an old word. He was bohemian. He believed and he practiced uh, intellectual freedom to the point of no limits. And he was thrown out of Wabash College, which is back in my neck of the woods, because there was a rule there that the professors weren't supposed to be living with girls. <laughs> because it was a Christian college. And uh, they threw him out because he had a gal in his apartment when he was a professor there. That was when he, I think, the first professorship he had. And uh, she was a tra- uh, traveling and needed a place to stay. And he said, well, I wasn't. I wasn't sleeping with her. I was just, they said, no, the appearance of evil in this case is too much, and they threw him out. Well, he lived a lot of his life like that. I don't know that he was Christian at all. Um, He went off on to complaining about the banking system and the Jews. What puzzles me is, don't know the answer, where did he get those ideas? Right, right. Yeah, I don't. I don't know how he came to that conclusion. The,
2: the, but those he, ideas he weren't weren't really out there back in those days the way they are now. He stumbled into some kind of a stream of that type of information to become that educated and aware at that point. To me,
3: well, he studied it, and there was. But before that, I have to conclude that he grew up out west in the early days in the frontier days, and he, I think, in Montana. Yeah, and I so I, I kind of have an idea. Uh, but I don't know that he grew up in that kind of a world where people hated railroaders, bankers, and uh, people didn't like Jewish people at all. Well, they still don't. I mean, that's, that's the fact of the matter all over the world. Uh, he, the fellow, one of the big shots there in France recently, people said, you need to run for president. He said, there's no way in France that a Jew will ever be elected president. Not the way things are. Well, it's that way all over the world, to varying degrees. And uh, But out West in the early days, it was that way even more so than it was back East. People hated bankers. They equated banker uh, with Jew, and they hated Jews. And so I kind of got it in my head, although I haven't read it, that he grew up in that kind of a world, and his mother and his father and his family. And so he just played it out because he became a, a literary man. He liked to read and write a lot, and he got to doing research, and he followed through what he had learned when he was growing up. That's a theory. I don't know for sure. Uh,
2: You know, another good example of that transition would be Michael Hoffman. What happened to him? Well, he came from a blue blood family. You know, you're familiar who I'm talking with about, I know you've you've talked about his books, uh, back East. He was from a blue blood family, went up through, I think the Ivy league somewhere and got, uh, hired by AP. And at one point was an AP bureau chief. And uh-huh. somehow stumbled into what was going on and totally bolted, and he's been out there doing what he does, revisionist history for all these years, writing those. That guy's probably got the best vocabulary of anybody I've ever stumbled on.
3: <laughs> Better than Chris?
2: Better than Chris.
3: That's saying something. I know. <laughs> yeah. you gotta re- well, you got to have
2: a theosaurus to read most of his stuff sitting right there, really.
3: I mean, <laughs> Uh-huh.
2: You've got a wonderful yeah. vocabulary, Jack. Let me go over and defer to Jack. see how Jackson's doing. He's got his mute on there, buddy. I want to thank you for uh-huh. having me over for lunch on Christmas, and it was a nice little afternoon. I ended up sleeping on your outdoor thing there for most of it. How you doing today, buddy?
4: Very nice, Roger. uh thank you for coming you It was a real pleasure to have you over.
2: Well, got over and got back, and uh, had a nice Christmas dinner. Anything going on with you, buddy?
4: No, I'm just trying to get the word out for the uh, the Peach Bowl tomorrow at Sports Planet. Yep. Okay.
2: So um, let's see. I don't know how many of our regular listeners remember. You know, everybody's off on this two week holiday schedule. If anybody remembered, we were going to be on today, but Brent and I have kind of, uh, it's worked into a it's kind of a tradition. A, a tradition. Well, now where's that well, now echo where's coming that? from? Jack, put, stick your mute back on there, buddy, if you would. Um, we always work through holidays on Fridays, and we have since we've been doing the program. I don't think we've ever missed one. Brent?
3: No, I don't think so, huh? Though there might have been one time that you couldn't get the, the connection to work on Skype.
2: Yeah, I mean, barring little, little gremlins like that.
3: Well, we were here present, cocked and loaded. We just couldn't get on. I remember yeah. that.
2: But uh normally we try and be here on these Fridays because they're important shows, and everybody wants to hear what Brent has to say. And, and people have traditionally thought this was probably the best show of the week. So uh, we're happy to do them. I don't know if anybody remembered too much today i wanted to say i've had a hard time uploading the last couple of shows to Castbox. i haven't been able to get one up there for a few days and uh, i'll continue to try though now my my internet's back up today jack on the claro modem because i've gone through so many days of a month though what they did was switched us to a cell phone plan it's it appears to me and so I get to use so many megabytes, but then when you've used so much, it, dr- it throttles you down. And so I'm at the first of the month again, uh, a month into this fiasco here in Ecuador. So we'll figure out if we can get that straightened out. But I'm back up to full limits, so maybe I can get those shows up, uploaded. But if you've been to CastBox and couldn't find the last couple, that's the reason. There's always something. It's a, it's It's always something. It's either a Windows update or a internet screw up or, uh, you know, software mess up or something. Seems like it's amazing well, I did, that we've been able to pull well, this off really, but we have. So what were you going to say, Brent?
3: I was going to say, uh, I did learn from one of our listeners what to do because as you said, it's always something technologically when we're doing this, uh, something will come up. There's some glitch. And the thing to do in such cases if you don't know what else to do is to reboot (laughs) reboot
2: now terrence terrence uh he did the call and is trying to call in now we've got chris joined on the phone and i don't know if it'll join terrence uh so i've got to call him back so just uh when i call you back here in a second and i find you terrence uh that's what's going on you know more like i said there's it's always something
3: Well, we ought to be glad it's uh, one thing and not two, as long as and if it's two, we'd be glad it's not three, I suppose.
2: Well, there is a feeling of gratitude, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let me see if I can dial Terrence in here. We'll see if we can drag him up. Uh, that's one thing I find that is the one that can surplant an awful lot of bad things is that feeling of gratitude. I think I did it right there you do, good Terence so, but if you you know if you have a if you're grateful for things, you can displace a lot of bad stuff, just hang yep. on to the things that are positive and be grateful for those things, and it'll bring you a lot of sanity how you doing Christmas Christmas Terence? do you have a good Christmas there with the family
1: yeah my dad uh my dad only beat me by one stroke this time,
2: okay, good uh, deal
1: and and he let me play from his cheese so. so it was good uh he's 70 uh well he's born in 43 so he's 75 anyway just can't beat him in golf so but it was fun and i had a good time
2: well you know Um, uh being uh, good at uh, golf is like being good at pool you know you know yeah it's all in the eyeballs well no it's what mark twain said it was a a product of a misspent youth.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it could be, uh, but it gets me out into the the middle of nowhere where there's nothing on earth to bother me. Oh yeah, that silly ball and golf club. Yep, uh, it's like therapy. But uh, I wanted to to bring up or, or mention of the talking about politics and how you can't change the system. Um, and my thought is for people that run for office if instead of promising the world to everybody if they would uh, run on a, uh, the idea of to right the wrongs or correct uh, the mistakes of the previous hundred congresses where the, the courts made rulings that were bad uh, say back in the Jim Crow where every man uh, or every judge pretty much owned a slave and they couldn't rule against themselves and you'd think that we'd come a to the point where we can comprehend what was wrong and right the wrongs instead of promising more stuff, just right the wrongs of the past and, uh, you know, try to bring it back to the, the common law and how it's supposed to be, except, you know, for the obstacles of the banking system and all that, but still, just to right the wrongs.
2: Well, that's exactly, of what, they,
1: of and well,
2: that's exactly what they don't want done.
1: <clears throat> but see, we're, we're, we're being forced to do it uh one at a time, uh, you know, with the uh uh with the passport and uh, uh the US national status we're we'll reinforced to do it one at a time instead of everybody doing it all you know, the day they're born. Yep. Um in the knowledge and that's, that's, that's my thinking. Well, you know, we could just try to right some wrongs.
2: One of the things I've come to understand is that a group of people have never accomplished anything except voting their hands into your pockets. And it's always the very small dedicated bunch that always affects change in the big picture. The, The others always go along with the herd. And it goes back to what Brent was talking about, about man's heart and our tendencies that they have recognized, analyzed, and so effectively set up things to use against us. Um, It's what the conclusions I've come to over all these years, you know, really. And so it comes back to it is an individual thing. And you can write that. You can't write it on the big picture, but you can write it on your picture. And your picture is the one that matters.
1: Right, but the, they're still uh, <clears throat> maintaining that uh, as the battle into the future. But uh, yeah, uh, Everyone have a good uh, – Roger, I'm going to sign back out so you have an open line. But uh, Okay, well, that's okay, uh, Terry. No, uh, I got
2: you on now. now. No, you can stay on if you want. I don't have those problems now. It's, it's a, pro- a new set of problems that Skype's given us, but I still got to call you back. Cody, we were talking about Cody. Okay. He must have heard us. Because he called in to join us here. My, my ears gonna... were burning. Oh, well, good, good.
0: <laughs> but uh, well, I had some good news. I got my two two iPhones back. Apparently, they didn't delete my data. Good. But uh, what they did with the rest, you know, what they did if they copied it, who knows? But uh, which you know is is anyway a lot of different business ideas and stuff I put on my phone, so I really don't appreciate. Having the government snooping
2: my phone, I wasn't, you know. Now, Cody, there is something there, I is, now there is something you can do that's constructive here if you've got those things nagging at you. And I'm not sure, sure. maybe Brent would know who you might direct this to, but you can FOIA, Freedom of, uh, of, of Information Request, your own administrative folder and see what they've got in there on you.
0: Did that for the, the
2: border patrol also, or just? For, you can do it with any. You can do it with any agency. You, no, okay. you can do it with any agency in the federal government. They're all under FOIA laws. Those all yeah. came out of Watergate, by the way, and they hate them. And oh, if you okay. don't think they're effective, just go look at the work Judicial Watch has done. Right. You yeah. see here the way the FOIA law is written. You can go, it's basically the open government law, and you can go and request what they have in your administrative folder. See, this is what I keep going back and telling you all, the administrative state is a court of record. You don't understand it and you don't look at it like that because there's not generally a black robe judge up there. You're dealing with an administrative agency agent, but they're a court of record. Right. And the reason they're a court of record is they got to keep all correspondence that you send them or they send you. It's a court of record. And if you get to a real court, one of their fall real courts, you can access anything in that administrative file and get it into bypassing the laws of evidence because it's from the court. Yeah.
0: Well, okay. Well, there was a, a law that I found the other day. It's kind of interesting. It, it titled something, Title 18, Color of Law. Correct. And uh, it, it talks about if anybody under color of law deprives your rights. It seems like most of the attorneys have talked about um, some of the civil rights laws; they have to sue some of these government agents. That that's ever done anything? That's a
2: different title. That's Title Forty Two. Not eighteen. A little
0: bit. This is Title Eighteen. You I understand? 40, all civil
2: 18. rights act, All civil rights actions are under Title Forty Two. Am I not right, Brent?
3: Yeah, right. Uh, Forty Two, Section Nineteen Eighty One through Nineteen Eighty Three is the big one. <clears throat>
4: There is a case to be
0: helpful
2: to Cody. Hold on. Our our reception's gone. Yeah, it's gone pretty bad here with you two guys on the phone, although Cody called in on Skype. He must be out traveling or something. What were you going to say, Chris?
4: Well, there's a case that speaks to color of law with some specificity called U.S. versus Minker. That yeah. basically says that we all have a duty to qualify the alleged authority of agents or actors who pose as acting as lawful, but who may be outside the scope and sphere of color of law.
2: There's another one: U.S. Crop Insurance versus Merrill, that says the exact same thing. It is your duty to ascertain the authority of the people that are contacting you.
3: Here, here. Yeah, and if you try to do that, they'll throw you in jail. That's if they correct.
2: <laughs> that's correct, and that's right. the way the system has evolved <laughs> right. and is being misused.
3: Well, Judge, I like you and everything, but do you have your oath of office that you can show me? No. Uh, so I write to Washington, D.C. Do you have an oath of office for this federal judge? Maybe, maybe not, but we're not sending it to you. Oh, bad chance. How about freedom of information? No, we don't pay attention to that. We'll
2: redact it.
3: Yeah, listen. Well, you, here's and what I was going to say. Do and I, I don't mean.
2: I'm so I don't mean to ahead. interrupt you, Brent. But there is your remedy, Cody, and that's what Judicial Watch use used so effectively. That's in the FOIA legislation, and that is if they won't answer you, or they redact it, or they delay because they got certain time limitations they got to reply to you. Now you can take them to court and hold their feet to the fire. And that's one way Judicial Watch has been so darned effective to the point of where they were going to get Hillary Clinton deposed. And that came out of a FOIA request. Mm-hmm. Okay? Well, I've always heard the attorneys talk about
0: the '83, part of the civil rights Go, well, this, this was a Title 18, so it was interesting. And The first paragraph is, Whoever under color of any law statute... Ordinance, regulation, or custom willfully subjects any person in any state, territory, commonwealth, possession, or district to the deprivation of any rights, privileges, or immunities secured or protected by the Constitution or laws of the United States, et cetera, et cetera. You know, is is, is you know that that's protecting it. So I thought that was another potentially useful. Brent was bringing up abusive process earlier, and is that only in court cases, Brent, or can that be used potentially on? Some officials well, you can use them. Um, you
3: know. it's a it's a legal action you it's, can a, it's common it. law is it's, what
2: you, you you miss there Cody that's a common law remedy we're not right. under common right. law we're under the UCC we're under merchant law and bankruptcy
3: yeah but Roger that that trumps all that common law remedies trump all that
2: well yeah, but you've got to be law, able to oh. do it, to manipulate it and to get it recognized and that's what we've been unable to do.
3: Well, that's just like saying uh, we can. Uh, it's up to us to find out who has authority, but uh, try it and see if it works. It doesn't work. Um, if you uh, file a, there's only there's only one thing that a federal judge hates more than a civil rights action under 1983. If you file it, and that's the lawyer himself that files it. He hates him worse. Yep. See if you, see if you get anywhere. I've filed more than one of those. Uh, it's you're fighting you're fighting the evil empire and the courts for whatever reason, go along with the evil empire on those points. And they abuse people. They take—they don't take the right. That's impossible. But they try to stop you from enjoying them. So the question comes again, what do we do? How do we fight this madness where the perverts have gotten their bony fingers on the levers of power uh, throughout the courts and other places? And the federal judges, uh, Feel compelled, or for whatever reason, the, the point of the courts is to follow the federal agents and believe them, and not believe anybody else. It's that overt and ugly at this point. Uh, worse at the federal level than the state level. It's become the accepted position in the courts throughout America, anyway. That as power increases, as the person who's uh, who's on the hot seat, as his power increases, the presumption. That he was right, and what he did increases instead of decreases. <laughs>
2: it's a direct correlation.
3: <laughs> no, that's official law. That is official law, that the bureaucrat is right, and the burden to overcome the regulation or the action of the bureaucrat in a 1983 action is overwhelming. But I want to add one other thing. It seems to be, uh, from my experience, people take the phrase color of law, and it's a, it's a mystery. It shouldn't be. Color, Chris will like this, I hope. We're talking about words. Color is an old word for flag. That's all it is, yes, color. Correct. Uh, still, in the naval services, you fly the colors. You don't fly the flag. They don't talk that way. Why? Because you're flying the colors. And the colors are the flag. And so to do something under color of law means that you, as it were, are flying the flag of law, like you have authority, when you don't. That's all that means. If some sheriff's deputy comes into uh, somebody's front yard, calls them out into the, and Chris, (laughs) this is really what happened to you calls or You come out to see what's going on. And he takes a bullwhip out and starts whipping the, the bejeebies out of you with it. Claiming he has authority to do that. Well, he's got on a uniform. He's got on a badge. He's carrying the flag of the law, Yep, but he, he has color of law, the color, the flag of law, but he's violating law. He has no authority to horsewhip men and women in their front yards, which used to be real popular in the South. I read a case about that once. Uh, if your skin wasn't right, the right color, they'd horsewhip you in your front yard. Well, there was a federal case about that, as a matter of fact. Well, my point being that color of law is a simple idea. It's just Saying you have authority, presenting yourself like you have authority, carrying a badge, wearing a uniform, got a gun, driving a a, a cruiser car with uh, uh, lights on it, looks like you got authority to do what you're doing, but you don't. That's called under color, mere color of law.
2: I would like to. I'd like to have Cody ask Chris how far that Title 18 statute section will get you.
4: Chris. Well, since you, since you ask, Roger, and and Cody, uh, whenever you run across this so-called pretextual de facto extreme court or these impostor attorneys masquerading as judges, which are mere hearing administrative officers, they have the so-called pretextual judicial discretion to do any darn thing they want to do. And just because you put in a suit, they can move your suit and most people don't know that means to basically extinguish it or make it worthless of no value.
3: Well that's right.
4: Let me
2: add what, what Roger Gibbons wrote that John used to use in our seminars, and I think is really appropriate, especially in this discussion at this point, is the first engine of tyranny is a corrupt judiciary. You know who Roger Gibbons was, Cody? Uh, no. He wrote The Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire.
0: I'll have to look him up. And the
3: fundamental reason for that is that a common law government is a government that has separation of powers. And the most fundamental of that separation of the three branches is the independence of the judiciary. If there is no independence of the judiciary, tyranny is concluded. Yep. The, judiciary, the judiciary, as crazy as they get, as long as they are independent of mind, we have a chance. That's common law government. The rest of the world, almost all the world lives where there is no independence of the judiciary as a matter of fact. In the rest of the world, dissenting opinions are not allowed in the on the judiciary or on the panels. They must all agree or act like they right. all the time. See, we here in America, we demand that the judges that don't agree, not only that they don't that they tell us they don't agree with the rest of the judges, we demand that they all write opinions and tell us why they agree or disagree. That's common law tradition, they don't do that in the rest of the world. That's just one example of what we mean when we say independence of the judiciary. The judiciary and the rest of the world, to be a judge is not to be a lawyer at all. Not to be a lawyer at all. Correct. Matter of fact, the judges of the rest of the world are not lawyers. They're trained to be judges. They have no understanding of the private practice of law. They have no sympathy for uh, what we would call a lawyer's client's they don't know what it means at all to defend somebody's fundamental rights. No, they don't want that. They want them to be trained specially as judges because to train you as a judge makes you a part of the civil service system, dependent for your pay upon the executive branch of the government and your position. And so you are a cog in the machinery of government. You just you support the legislator and the legislation and you parse the legislation you, because the judiciary is not independent. They never look at their former opinions. They're not allowed to do that. They are to look only to the legislator's code, period. Not consider any case that occurred before. All these things that we have in our common law tradition, Uh, the independence of the judiciary means that they cite former opinions and they look for wisdom of the past in former opinions. They don't do that in the rest of the country. We have dissenting opinions. Our judges are taken traditionally in a common law country from the ranks of lawyers, not from government service. That's getting to be a problem because increasingly judges are taken from lawyers who are of government service, but still we have the tradition that we're, our judges are taken from the ranks of practicing lawyers, and that's an appropriate Part of independence of the judiciary back to you roger
2: i was going to say Cody's made right? you may just hold on a second chris because I, I don't want to forget this cody's latest deal is wanting to change and go after all the governors and change the governors so they will institute states rights if you really wanted to make a substantial change you'd change at the judiciary level but, yeah, you can see yeah. that that's almost impossible because those people are in most point in most cases appointed.
3: yes, but even if they are appointed, um, they're still taken from the from the ranks of practicing lawyers. They're still impeachable in a common law country, like they are in ours, and we used to impeach quite a few of them, yes, and we still have. The jury, because we don't trust the judge no matter what. Now, who was that guy?
2: Remember that guy in Chicago? I'll bet you are familiar with him, Brent Skolnick. He's dead now. He was a Jew. And he's the one that got one of those appellate, a couple of those appellate uh, judges up there in that circuit kicked out. You remember that guy? I think one of them may may have been Posner. But the guy that initiated all the action was um, was a cripple. He was in a wheelchair. His name was Skolnick. Because I used to hear him interviewed all the time years ago on Tom Valentine, I think. And interestingly yep. enough, he was a Jew.
3: Yeah, I don't, I don't know him. Oh, I you're not familiar
2: him, with no. that name? Oh, well, it's in the, You can go put it in a search engine. I'm sure it'll show up. But that was when I first got into this almost 30 years ago, and and he died
4: quite a while back. Remember him, Chris? Skolnick? Vaguely, uh, vaguely I do, but more important. Uh, just recently, last week, I think it was, the new Supreme Court Justice, Gorsuch, was extolling the importance, the criticality need for separation of powers. However, me thinks that he is avoid the absurdity of the obvious in that the bar itself has assimilated all separated powers of government under their private association in most instances. Uh, notwithstanding people like Brent and myself, who try to honor and bring forth true justice, equality, and fairness in the courts, as opposed to the thumb on the scales of justice by the so-called judiciary.
2: It's right there. Brent, what do you know about when they, when judges, before they go sit on the bench, they send them to these different schools? Do you know anything about that?
3: Well, I do know that in Reno, Nevada, the University of Reno has included now with the university, Reno, Nevada, the Judicial Council. And it's relatively unknown, kept quiet, but judges from even Podunk America, Go to the judicial council is funded by a wealthy, well, (laughs) by those uh, pharisites of that persuasion. And uh, you can get a lot of nice things there. You can learn, you can take courses on writing, and you also can take courses on how to handle difficult situations in the courtroom. You know, it gives the good with the bad. That's the way you get the good in. You provide something for nothing uh, to people who need help. You know, if you become a judge in America, even in a small courtroom, well, you don't have a clue what you're doing. It's all brand new. You It takes a while to learn it. And most people that are appointed to judgeships or get elected, some of them, it's in a matter of election. Where I'm from, it's, it's an elected position. If you're, you're there, uh, you've never done it before. And you, um, you've you never tried a case. Now, most lawyers don't go in the courtroom much anymore.
0: Yep.
3: And that's a lot of the problem. Yep. They don't understand what law is. If you don't understand procedure, the common law procedure, that's what common law is. Common law is due process. And it doesn't just include it. That's just fundamental. That's what it is. It's the way we do things that we stress. We let the chips fall where they may on the other side. All the rest of the world just says, no, here's the result you've got to reach. You've got to reach the result the legislator wants. Well, in America, we say, no, we're going to follow process and concentrate on the course of process and let the chips fall where they may. Because the judgment, as the Bible says, if you follow the process, the Bible says the judgment belongs to the Lord. That's the way the Bible puts it, and we still follow that as part of our common law tradition. But the problem is, most of the people appointed to the bench in America, and Chief Justice uh, Roberts pointed this out in 2006 in his annual report, Uh, most of lawyers that are appointed to the bench are not from from the private practice of law even, so they don't understand uh, the law of evidence, they don't understand due process, they don't understand... Um, motions. They don't understand anything. And so they're on the bench all of a sudden, and so the Judicial Council is there to help them keep control of the courtroom. Now, these folks that teach judges to to take control of the courtroom and, and do this and do that, they're the ones that tell you what to do, so they have the power. Is it the Bar Association that has the power? I don't believe it is, primarily. I believe it's the Judicial Council and those kind of people. They have the power. They're the ones that are giving answers to people when they don't have any. And they're telling them to be brutal and not tolerate anyone who resists the government. Just like there's a fellow traveling around now, some psycho babble shrink of the same uh, theological and religious point of view, who's telling cops, teaching them, it's the smart thing to do to shoot first. Shoot first. Kill first. If there's any, any question in your mind of any safety, kill him. That is the policy of policemen because of a Ph.D. babble fella who's traveling the country and on the Internet teaching law enforcement officers to do that. I've Don't seen hesitate.
2: I saw a video yeah. of that guy here. A couple people have gotten back to me, Brent and Greg, Greg. on uh, this yeah. Skulnick situation. His name was Sherman Skolnick, Okay, mm-hmm. And I guess this is from Wikipedia here, if I can read okay. it. It says okay. uh, reading on a small screen is not too conducive to my eyes. Skolnik Skolnick investigations put Otto Kerner in prison for three years and led to the resignation of two Illinois Supreme Court justices, Roy Salfusberg and Ray Kleinling. Kleinbein, something, who, as Skolnick reported, had accepted bribes of stock from a defendant in a case on, that they ruled upon. So it wasn't Posner, but he did get two uh, Supreme Court justices removed up there in Illinois. That's, well, I'll man. Listen, that's a feat in itself.
3: Yeah, but I'll make a prediction. I know I remember Otto Kerner, and uh he was a conservative. And I'll bet those other two Supreme Court justices were conservative, and I'll bet that what he said about them was trumped up. He wanted to get rid of them because they were contrary to his religious point of view. That's the way that works. Could have been. Now, I don't know. I I but I remember I didn't realize I remember Ker, Otto Kerner very well. Um and uh I remember I met, oh, it's been 15 years ago, uh, General Westmoreland, Westmoreland.
2: Yep, Vietnam. And he yep. was
3: called Vietnam, in. Mr.
2: Pardon? Vietnam.
3: Yeah, and he his mind wasn't exactly right when I talked to him, but he didn't have enough presence of mind when he asked me, uh, well, we just got to talking about uh, politics. And he said, well, I was called in to testify for a fella who served under me as a junior officer in North Africa during World War II. And he said, of course, he was a junior officer then, too. And he said uh, he called me in to testify, and I believe it was Otto Kerner. Because he said he was governor of Illinois, and I think that's the one it was. But uh, he was no doubt a conservative, Christian, American, and probably a Republican. And uh, this fellow wanted to go after him. But yeah. I'm going to look. You guys have gotten me interested. Well, you know see... where
2: I used to hear, hear him all the time. If I remember right, was Tom Valentine, and Tom Valentine's a pretty straight shooter, and he had him on many times for you know hour or more.
3: Oh yeah, yeah. Well, I'm sure he had his way with the media. Then uh, you start talking that way. But
0: behind all that of brings that. Up... Go ahead. Go ahead, Cody. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. No, I just said that brings up a kind of a question I had about this. This uh, Kentucky governor, you know, they're they're giving him some issues over his pardons, but th- they said, oh, the FBI is investigating. Now, what right does the FBI have to investigate uh, a state issue? I was curious to ask you that,
3: Brent. It starts this way. If you remember, uh, the governor of Illinois, two of them in a row went to federal prison, George Ryan and uh, Blagojevich. Neither one of them were guilty of anything, any crime that I know of. The only the crime that what Blagojevich did was he went after the teachers unions. The teachers unions put him in office, and then he went after them. Well, they weren't going to tolerate that, so they got their federal prosecutor buddy up there in Chicago to throw him in prison for ten years. George Ryan, just before that, he didn't commit any crime either, and even the the, jur- the trial revealed that. But they threw him into prison for five years at the behest uh, of uh, Glenn Posherd, who was congressman that ran for governor, and he beat him. Same situation going on with Hillary. What, what did Donald Trump do wrong? He defeated Hillary, and that, that gets him in trouble, see? That's the way that works. But both of those governors, when you read their indictments, uh, the feds prosecuted them. You say how the feds have jurisdiction to do that. You read their indictment. The first thing it says on the indicting instrument is the state of Illinois received in excess of $10,000 from the federal government during the year in question. You see because states accept money from the federal government to do whatever it is they want to do, they want that money. It's more and more more than 10,000. 10,000 is a pittance. It's more like 10 billion or 10 whatever. Yeah. But They accept it and once they do that, they are in control of the federal government because whoever pays the piper calls the tune. It's that simple. If federal financial assistance, FFA, if you just like I was saying about these whistleblowers, they're all beneficiaries of the of the of the federal government or the state government. And once you accept that money, you're accepting money from organized crime, namely the bankers who print the money or have it printed. And once you do that, to any degree, they will control you as a matter of the system. Because the courts say if you accept $1, and I'm not exaggerating, this is what they say, $1 of federal financial uh, assistance, As to any matter, to that degree, in that matter, the government has absolute control of what you can and cannot do.
2: You know where that comes from, Cody?
3: Dangerous. Go ahead.
2: You know where that comes from, Cody? No. The feudal system. No. It's the relationship of a liege man to a liege lord. If you receive the benefit, you owe the duty. Liege, L-L-E-I-G-E, is the root word of allegiance. Allegiance for protection, protection for allegiance. It comes out of the feudal era.
3: And that's why we are an independent country, because we said, and this is ignored, but we said that King George has abrogated his duty of protection toward us. Therefore, we owe no duty of allegiance to him. That's called the doctrine of premoneri. and that's what was that was the basis of why we went to war with Britain. It was all a matter of feudal truth. The doctrine of you know,
0: what? The doctrine of, of what?
3: Well, I don't don't think I know how to pronounce it right because I don't. <laughs> it's a Latin word, and I take I take particular delight in mispronouncing Latin and French words. Premineri <laughs> sounds like manure to me, but I but it's 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 spelled with a p r e or pray some people say pray menier pray menier there's it, in my book excellence of the common law i have a long section on pray menier pray manier. Okay. yeah I mean, you can but you can look the word up i don't remember exactly how to spell it but uh, that's that's the feudal doctrine that says if a person agrees you make an agreement with a man i will protect you because I have power to do it, like the king of England, the prince. And then you say, okay, then I will farm your land. Correct. That's the whole system yep. of land ownership in England that yep. came from the country. Well,
2: you know, Brent, you could always invoke the Mark Twain doctrine here. What was that? I never gave a damn for a man that could only spell a word one way.
3: Yeah. <laughs> And I understand that. Why not spell a word the way it sounds and forget it? I have letters from my great-grandfather, my great-grandfather, and even back that far, uh, people didn't, there was no standardized spelling. The dictionary, first dictionary in the English language wasn't written until the 17th century. That was Sam Johnson. And before that, nobody anywhere in any any academic institution e- even ever spelled words the same. They just spelled them the way they sounded. I've got letters from my grandpa, great-grandpa, where he spells the same word two different ways in the same line on a letter. <laughs> well, who cares? I get it, man. I mean, and a lot in, of words the words that are standardized spelling. You end up making them up. Go ahead.
2: He was invoking the Mark Twain doctrine. <laughs>
3: Yeah, and the tongues of men are not made primarily to be written, they're made to be spoken. And our writing is nothing but an attempt to reproduce what we say. That's what it is, a record, to try to make a record of what we have said. And if... We spell a word the way it sounds, that's the way it ought to be. If it sounds that way, and uh, Latin words, of course, you get into university system and the law of the city and the canon law of Rome, uh, education became, and the way you spell a word, uh, became more important than communication. Communication. You know, the French don't care what you say. They don't care, and they don't care, or what they say. They don't even care how they say it. The only thing that's important to them is that they pronounce it correctly. Okay. Well, that's the way it is for written language, too. And if you mispronounce a French word, they're going to get mad at you. Well, that's why I say I take particular delight in doing that and uh, particular delight in pronouncing English words the way I want to pronounce them. Let me
2: tell you what, it's the same way in Spanish too, buddy. Okay, and I can give you innumerable examples, all right? But... You, you've you got to pronounce that word exactly right or they don't understand it. And that's the difference in English is that's when right. they're speaking English, they can mispronounce a word, and I, I know what they're saying and in context, yeah. but it doesn't reverse. And I can give you a couple of examples. When I was uh-huh. dancing in Argentina, and I, was, I danced tango for a few years down there, I think this is for you, and I started doing these shows, Brent. And yeah. I'd, I'd not been in a while. I got sidetracked there, and I ran into one of the gals uh, uh, down on downtown on the street, walking along. Hey, Flavia, how you doing? And we have a little conversation. And I said, "Well, have you seen Juan lately? Juan was our tango instructor, right?" I yeah. said, "Have you seen Juan?" And she said, "Who?" I said, "Juan. Have you seen Juan? Who? Juan." Uh-huh. And she, "Oh, you mean Juan." <laughs> Okay, I, I can't little, tell a difference. Little style, well boy, they can.
3: Okay.
0: Yeah. I
3: know what you're saying. And because their tongues being Latin based tongues, French and Spanish, are inflected to the hilt. And uh they have Indians on their words, the same root that has many different Indians, to show you where where it belongs in the sentence. And the word order doesn't even matter as much. The pronunciation matters, whereas with us we use word order to dictate what's the subject and what's the verb and what's the object for them with them. They they do use order, but it doesn't matter that much. it's reverse. It's always reverse. The
2: adjective is always after the noun. It's not the red house. It's the house red.
3: That's right too. Yeah, I get it. I get what you're saying.
2: Well, here's somebody trying to call in. That's given me a weird message. I can't identify who it is. It's got some Skype identification. And when I click the merge button, it doesn't merge them. So Uh it means I'm not going to be able to call you back. Whoever live colon dot Sid nine is I'm sorry.
3: Well, they'll call back maybe on well, the, the. Well,
2: well, yeah. they won't make any difference. I can't merge them in. You see, I got to call them back if they call in on the phone, oh. and it's not a person who's called in before that I've got a profile for. It's some Skype mystery code, so oh, I'm sorry, live whoever tried to call, I can't join you.
3: Well, maybe they'll get so they can.
2: Hopefully, that's why I try and encourage everybody. You know, to to load Skype. It's pretty easy. It's not intimidating. Uh, they're not trying to track you. They may listen to what you have to say and store it somewhere. But maybe somebody'll hear it and pay attention. You know, that's always been. I'm not scared of them listening to me. I want them to listen to me. Maybe some of them that are listening will pick something up and get smart. Uh huh. <laughs> so or anyways, maybe
3: they'll add something to what we're saying, Roger, and we'll get smarter. You
2: know, I you know keep trying. <laughs> You know, go ahead, Cody.
0: Talking about Kentucky. Uh, talking about Kentucky. We're back there, but they, they redid some of the bridges there at, at Louisville, and uh, now they're coal bridges. You know, it's just interesting that they can't find any federal money when one of the bridges is right on Interstate 65. You know, we spend all this money on these foreign entanglements, and then they have to. The state is forced to spend the money, so then they have to turn it into a, a, a toll road or toll bridge. It's just, this at, is, you know, at what, what point, where, I'm wondering, are people are just going to get tired of this government?
2: They're not, Toddy. They're going to, until suffering becomes insufferable.
0: Well, they say 40% of the people have bills in collection, so I would think that would be pretty, pretty close if there's that big a percentage of the population that's, Having financial issues you'd think we would but i guess they keep them drugged up pretty good too don't don't, don't ever
2: so, don't you know. ever overestimate the intelligence of the general population
3: well, roger i think they're intelligence but i agree with cody they they did but no it was you said that maybe i'm getting mixed up you sure. said that people will suffer what's sufferable
2: well isn't that what jefferson said in the declaration of independence until suffering yeah, I, becomes I, insufferable I, I,
3: I can see it around me all my life. Yeah. People put up with a lot. But there does come a breaking point at some point. How bad can it get? I mean, I know lawyers now that are pulling their membership in the U.S. Supreme Court. They don't want to be associated with it because they're perverts, they say. And I, I get what they're saying. It's, in other words, there's no dignity in it. They want to maintain their own dignity and their own honor. And to join yourself to an organization like that and be a member of the bar of a court that is manned by people that can't even look between their legs and figure out who they are, you've got a problem. And,
2: and, and Cody, there's the answer. You see, it's us, not us getting together and changing it. It's us stepping out and letting it fall of, of its own overweighted, perverted self. That's, That's how the, this we're ends.
1: Back.
2: We're not going to beat it. You've got to understand, you keep saying states' yeah. rights. There hadn't been states' rights since about 1865. They've well, you been gotta political. You've got to you gotta they, be a
0: belligerent claimant. You're the one that said that.
2: You don't have, that's right, but you don't have, you don't have any rights, Cody. You have birthrights, citizenship rights. They're tied to a document called a birth certificate, and you're considered by these people that run this a piece of property. You don't have rights that aren't civil. You don't have any God-given rights. I mean, I, I, I don't know how well, I can... about
0: ex- states' rights, you know, attempts
2: 10th Amendment, right? Yeah. You know, for the state. Yeah, and you that know, was written. And that was. A, to
0: that. And
2: that was written in the Constitution way before the bankruptcy.
3: But but uh, it's a, it's impossible that our rights can be taken from us. Our, our our fundamental documents recognize that. I see it in the Bible, and I believe it. If God gave them, he's the only one that has the authority to take them, and no matter what anybody else does, and, they're still here. That's right,
2: that's they are, and they are still there, and we're dealing with fraud.
0: That's well, that, exactly that's
2: what's happening, and that's why they recognize that affidavit, is because they know it's fraud better than we do.
0: Yeah,
3: but I'm not willing to say that we don't have rights. I'm willing to say, of course, that uh, the government, uh, doesn't want us to enjoy our rights, and that's what—that's the way the Civil Rights Act reads: the enjoyment of the right. It never says that your rights are taken. It says that people under color of law uh, stop you from having them, or and no, stop you from enjoying them. See, here I am saying the thing, the same thing. It's a matter of words. We get to talking like the devil wants us to talk, like. In the Garden of Eden, and pretty soon uh, because words then have meanings, uh, the courts will say to us, "Well, you just admit it you don't have any rights, so I guess you don't. move on next case. I don't want to say that
2: well, you it's know you know what uh, uh, John used to tell us is there are jurisdictional statements in the first paragraph of every lawsuit that's filed now you mentioned right. one a minute ago about receipt and benefit, okay, but that wasn't the one yeah. that he used. The example he used is: it'll say, "Brent Winners, comma a resident of, boom," and there's the presumption.
3: Well, am I a resident of some state? Yes. Is that what? It's, well, then what's wrong with that?
2: Well, it, nothing's wrong with it. It's just tied back to the Fourteenth Amendment and the state wherein they reside. So, if you're residing in a state, you're hooked into the Fourteenth Amendment's jurisdiction
3: oh but you are residing in the state and that means that
2: well uh, it depends on the word reside now how are you using that term are you re- using it in that in that uh, like it says in black's law dictionary in the first edition under residency i believe the last statement is your residency is where you receive your taxes or you receive your bills, benefits and duties is in there, okay? So that term is a term of art that's being used under color of law to tie it back into the 14th Amendment to give them this fraud jurisdiction. And they did that on March the 9th of 33 when they bankrupted the country and brought that system that was already sitting there set up in the background to bore, to bear. (laughs) DeBoer, it might DeBoer might even be better.
3: <laughs> well, I'm glad I'm not the only one that does that kind of thing. <laughs>
2: but but that's what's going on. It, it's simply, and you know where I got this, Brent, was from Al Addis. When Al Adisk and I were doing those shows for a year, year and a half, however long it was, he got onto this one day on one of those shows, and he said, you can go in the law dictionary and go look up presumptional law. I mean, go, go do it. Okay? It's a presumption that's based on another fact, and that's what, what they're it? doing. They've shifted the presumption in March the wow. 9th that you're in this system and your property, and they recognize that there's two systems or else they wouldn't recognize this affidavit. And they recognize right. it, they're forced to because wow. it's all done on fraud. And even they go back and recognize basic tenants of law. Is my experience and what I've the conclusion I've come to.
3: Okay. Now, you said that uh, uh, it's the presumption is based upon a, an, a fact, but the presumption itself is not a proven fact. Is that what you're driving that's, at?
2: Uh, that's exactly what it is.
3: Uh-huh. And all they've done,
2: so we were originally under the presumption of innocence, and we had these God-given rights, and they've shifted that presumption to where you're over under this new system, and you're a birthright citizen. They've even got a bureaucratic nomenclature to identify it, a birthright uh-huh. citizen. You get your rights at birth, and they're civil rights under the 14th Amendment. And that presumption rolls on. Now, all through your life, they've asked you, And this is evidently part of the way they pulled the scheme off. They've asked you, hey, Brent, are you a citizen of the United States? Are you a resident? Yep, yep, and you signed something. So now they've got the overriding idea of the Constitution in effect, the consent of the governed. You've consented that that's what you are. Just because they ask you in these strange words that you don't understand, like are you a citizen of the United States or are you a resident, they're not asking you are you under the scope and purview of the 14th Amendment. They ask you some other way where they can trick you with the words they've equivocated and stuck in there. Where's the noise coming from, Cody? So anyway, that's to me, and all these years that I've spent and I'm, Thousands, tens of thousands of hours thinking about it. That's basically the conclusion I've come to. They shifted the presumption of law on March the 9th of 33 in the bankruptcy.
3: And then it comes down to who has to prove. Correct. Who has to prove it. Yeah, I get it.
2: And that's why it's the feudal system they brought in under the first three words of the 14th Amendment, all persons born. Now, that but concept of of status by birth comes out of the feudal system.
3: But, Roger, don't we have a status by birth, a birthright?
2: Ye, well, we did. We don't anymore. You can still achieve <laughs> but, it, but you've got to go back to the Lord of the manor and tell him you're volunteering out of servitude.
3: Well, but God gives me a birthright. He says it is my inheritance, my birthright.
2: And it says in the Bible they've stolen our birthright, and that's what they've done, and this is how they've done it.
3: I see what you're driving at. Now, mine hasn't been stolen. Uh, I still have mine, and I don't intend to get rid of it. Matter of fact, I don't intend to sell it. No, and I'm not saying that you don't
2: have it. it. I'm saying you've got to assert it.
3: Well, that's right. Now, that is right, Roger. I was talking to somebody the other day, uh, Israel, was given the inheritance of the land of Canaan. And the Lodial landlord said, these people that are living there, the Canaanites, I'm taking it away from them. Uh, The land is going to vomit them out. Uh, Here's title deed to it. That's the book of Deuteronomy. Here's the title deed. It's yours. Now, form up your militia, go in there and fight for it. Same thing.
2: Yep. That's to say you
3: have right. Your rights have to be a belligerent claimant, as you have said. You have to go after it. And if you're not willing to fight, the kingdom of heaven is taken by violent men. Says the Bible. The authority arrangement of, of the of the skies of God is taken by violent men. Well, there it is. Back yeah. to you, Roger.
2: Well, I mean that's the what that this the essence of what I've come to understand and learn. I I just laid out there, it's a shift in the presumption of law, it's based on fraud, and they recognize it, and that tells me that they recognize all of those principles.
3: Uh Uh-huh. Well, I think that's true. I think that's true, so it's up to us to be belligerent claimants. And if you're not a belligerent claimant, and go after the authority, and that draws the distinction between authority and power God has given us authority we're talking about this last couple of weeks to them to as many as received him to them gave he authority and if you have the authority that means you have the jurisdiction that means you're carrying the evidence of authority which is your walking papers the Bible for example then you go after what he tells you to go after but the evil empire is going to fight you. So that's where we are.
2: Well, they, they, what my experience is they won't fight you on this. I've not received one bit of blowback in nine years of putting this information out and everybody. And I have no idea how many people have filed that paperwork. But this is my reasoning. I don't know who did it. How many people have read the book, did it spontaneously, etc. But I do pretty much know this. If anybody that had done that had problems because of that and it was directly linked, I would have heard yeah. about it.
3: Right. No, I get what you're saying. But if if uh, they get on to it, there's going to be a resistance.
2: Well, it, it comes down to there's more of us than there are of them, and they know it. And that's one of the reasons they're silent on this. It exposes them to the bone on everything they've done, and they can't bring it out. You kind of back them into a corner with this, best I can tell. Uh, Speaking of backing into a corner, we're backed into a corner on time. So, Brent, as is our custom, when we have the Uh. extra time, I like for you to give the audience a way that they can get more Brent Winters. Because you do it very, very eloquently, by the way.
3: Thank you, Roger. It's kind of you to give me the opportunity. Just go to commonlawyer.com commonlawyer.com and you can go to the events button and you can see there how to click some links and participate with us in uh, classes on law. Namely, right now, we're going through 45 weeks of the law of promises, contracts of common law. We just finished evidence of common law. I'm thinking we ought to go to due process next, 45 Good. weeks of that on Good Saturday Sunday. mornings, you can yeah, you can see me, I can't see you, Sunday morning we have church at in church you can see me, I can't see you but you can tune in, you can also, it tells you what number to dial, just dial on your telephone, you can do it on smartphone, telephone, click on a link for your computer and then During the week, you can see there under the events button, now you can hear me on the radio, just recently picked up an hour a week, in addition to shortwave and uh, People's Patriot Network, um, picked up in Missouri with another group. And this fellow is going to attend, Roger, the trial. Oh, good. Constitution on trial, yeah. (laughs) In Everton, Missouri, on the 28th, the evening of the 28th, of march and you can go to the website there the events button see all about that and you can participate you can come there there's places to stay uh for families you can come and stay as a family bring your motor home bring your camper
2: can we can, we, you can we stay? or can we file an amicus uh, brief
3: you can file an amicus i wish you would <laughs> <laughs> ted ted wyland ted wyland is is um the, he's going to prosecute the point that the Constitution of the United States is unbiblical, and I'm the defense Thank you very much, Roger Hey
2: Brent. We'll see you next uh Friday on our post new year's wrap up okay okay <laughs> good show today, thanks guys. everybody that participated Hope you took something away from it. Enjoy the rest of the weekend, and I'll be back on Monday. We'll do a show on Monday. We'll do a show live on Monday and next Friday. That's the schedule. And I'll see you then. Have a good one. Ciao, ciao, amigos.
0: 2020 Vision.
1: Thanks, guys.